Welcome to episode 175 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Vanessa Brown. She served in the Army and she deployed three times and each time that she deployed she saw some version of combat and was injured either by getting knocked out, getting shot at, or getting in a rollover after an IED blew up in front of her vehicle. We spent a lot of time talking about some of the challenges she faced as a woman serving in the military before combat exclusion was lifted and she talked about how they saw the need for her to be off base for various missions and how that impacted her career. This podcast episode does go into some of the combat that Vanessa experienced, so if you're worried that it may trigger something, it may be good to skip to a different podcast episode because there is a lot of trauma in this episode that is discussed and I wanted to make you aware of it before we hit play. So... I'm excited to share Vanessa's story, and I'm so thankful that she was able to be open and vulnerable and share about her experience in the military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And one last thing before we get started, for the month of March, I've decided to run a giveaway and I'm giving away three copies of my book, Women of the Military. If you would like a signed copy of Women of the Military, all you have to do is either share the podcast on social media and make sure to tag me or you can leave a review on your favorite podcast app and make sure you send it to me either on social media or to my email at airmentomom at gmail.com. So if you would like to win a copy of Women of the Military, make sure to share the podcast or leave us a review. And now let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. I'm excited to have you here. It's nice to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So for me, it was actually more uh, surprising. I was born and raised in Germany, but my husband at the time, he was in the military. He was in the army. And I just finished, I graduated college and I was looking for something with a purpose, something where I can do, make a change. And having the surroundings from him being in the military, I thought that was, it's probably the best decision for me. Plus I could be standing on my own two feet in case things don't work out. So did you meet your husband when he was stationed overseas in Germany? Exactly. Yeah. He was stationed in Germany. I grew up there. I lived there. And we had this interesting story that we met at the Oktoberfest. And then how long after you got married did you decide that you wanted to join the military? It was a little over four years afterward. And were you guys living in the States at that time? Or Yes, we lived in Kentucky um, because he was stationed in Fort Knox. And I went to the University of Louisville and I played tennis for their college team. That sounds fun. Oh, it was. It was a good time. And when you graduated, were you worried that it would be hard to find a degree? And like, that's why the military, I mean, you said you were looking for sense of purpose, but was it just that? 
I made the choice. I studied business management. And for some reason, towards the end of my degree, I started noticing that maybe that's not really what I wanted to do. But at that point, I was so close to graduating that I was like, okay, let's just finish this for now and then see where it goes. And then the idea with the military came into play. What career field did you end up going into? It was Army, and I decided to be a wheel mechanic. And the biggest influence on that is actually my dad, because he was a mechanic. Uh, my parents owned their own car shop in Germany. So I grew up with him teaching me about cars and trucks. So it was kind of like, as soon as I saw that as a, as a field for me, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm taking that. That's great. So what was the experience like to have, you're married to someone who's on active duty, you're going to boot camp. Did the military work to get you stationed together after your training was complete? Or how did that all shake out? In the beginning, it could have been quite complicated because he was a tanker. And tankers don't have like the biggest options of places that they can go to. So he actually decided while I was in training that he's going to reclass to also become a mechanic so that we have a better chance to get stationed together. And then the Army did have like this spousal program where they really tried to get you together as much as possible. Try, but <laughs> try, yeah. I was dual military, so I understand how they try and get you together. I meant to ask this earlier. When you came to the U.S., you obviously you're a German citizen and then you came to the U.S. Like, What was the process of becoming an American citizen like or were you not a citizen yet until after you joined the military? I was not a citizen when I joined, but all that was required was a green card at the time. But they did tell me that I can only join for four years and then I would have to make a choice whether or not to become a citizen or not. So if I become a citizen, I can stay in the military. If not, then I would have to get discharged. And did that like help the path towards citizenship? I don't think it had like a big impact on, you know, being able to become a citizen. I think it's just the whole process was just a bit shorter than usual because the army just did everything for you. So it just made it a little quicker. Yeah. And it's a long process. Yeah, I mean, I did still have to take the written test and I had to read to them and speak to them, answer a bunch of questions. So I still had to do all of that, too. But just I, there, I didn't have to involve lawyers like other people have to or so. So that made it easier. Yeah, I just think it's so fascinating to like talk to someone who joined the U.S. military who grew up in Germany. And so was there like a big culture shock when you came to the States or because the base was there, you were kind of used to? I mean, we do have certain stereotypes about Americans, even in Germany. But I think like a big shock for me was actually, or not a shock, actually, I thought it was nice, is the fact or the idea of patriotism. In Germany, that's not really a thing. So just being there and then even joining the military, you know, just, you know, saying like, you know, this is my flag, this is my country, like having this pride, that is something that I never had in Germany. I mean, I'm still proud to say, you know, I'm German and I was born and raised there and I have my heritage, but it's just a lot different. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's get back to your story of joining the army. How was boot camp and what was that experience like? Personally, I love boot camp. I was probably one of those those typical people, like if someone would yell at me, I had a really rough time to not laugh. So I know that always got me in trouble, but I was like an expert in doing push-ups at the end of basic because every time they yelled at me and I had to laugh, of course, I was doing more push-ups. But I remember like the very first day when they do their shark attack and they try to intimidate you. 
the thing that was going through my head was all the movies that I watched. So I was just like, oh my God, this really is like Full Metal Jacket. So those were the things that I, I remember. But I also remember that there are people completely different that were scared. They were crying. They wanted to leave. They want to go home. So it was like almost like a little uh, overflow of different emotions at the time. But then boot camp itself, I love challenges and being challenged. So for me, it was just like every day was like a new challenge and I really enjoyed it. I mean, they did tell us to be probably doing things you would never do again. So might as well take advantage of it. That's a great way to look at it. Because yeah, you do like all these things, propel buildings, do obstacle course, all the stuff that you, I mean, unless your job ends up being something related to that, you might not ever get a chance to do it again. Were you able to get stationed with your spouse? Yes. Um, first Duty station, actually not too far, was in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I got stationed with the 101st, and he completed his training a little bit after me, and then he was sent right behind me. So we never had an issue being stationed together, so that wasn't really a problem. That's great. What would be the next big thing that happened in your career? So as soon as I got to my duty station, I remember I was in processing, and they were like, oh, yeah, you go in there and there. You guys are getting ready to deploy. And I was just like... Yeah, of course. (laughs) I mean, I signed up to be a mechanic. That's all I was thinking about. And then they threw me into a bunch of classes. And of course, it was 101st. So they were like, okay, young guys, we're getting ready. So you go airborne, you go aerosol. For me, they also sent me to service and recovery training, which is for mechanics. Basically, you learn how to operate a big tow truck, (laughs) technically, and just to maneuver different areas and fields, uh, how to get, you know vehicles unstuck or flip them, things like that. I actually really enjoyed that. And the fact that I got the opportunity to do all these courses and classes. Did I want to be airborne? No, no, not really. (laughs) But I can say at least I did it. So what year was it when you went through all that training? Um, It was 2007 into 2008. And then in 2008, I went to my first deployment to Iraq. Let's talk about your experience in Iraq. And I think it's so interesting because you were doing all that training and combat exclusion was still well into effect because it didn't get repealed until 2015. I remember we got there and the first thing they told us, ladies, we we are not going to let you guys go out the wire. So I was like, okay, so I did a whole recovery school for nothing, but okay. And I remember I actually fought together with my motor sergeant that... I could go onto certain convoys because he was always really supportive of me because he said, A, I was a really good mechanic. And then I had the advantage. I had smaller hands and just it was easier for me to reach into certain spaces where the guys couldn't get to. So he's like, you know, she's an asset. We need to take advantage of that. So eventually they let me go on convoys. And I mean, I was, I was excited. That was, that was a great thing. Of course, you know, when you're on convoys, not so happy and nice things happen, but um, still I mark it as experience. So. Yeah. So you went through that training, but then you got to Iraq and they're like, women can't be in combat. So you have to stay on base. And you're like, well, you kind of need me off base. They were like, yeah, we really do. (laughs) Which I think is what happened 
a lot in the war is that they'd be like, "We, you can't be off base, but you need me. And they're like, yeah, we do. It, I mean, it, it's, it starts usually starts with a fight to uh, get to, to that point. But then eventually they do realize and they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we do need you. Or even for smaller situations, when I was attached to a lot of combat engineers because I was working on the buffaloes and, or even sometimes some infantry units because they had to go out and out to the towns that were around the base. And they were not always MP units where we were at, where females were able to go out with them. So they had to pick certain females that had at least somewhat of experience outside the wire to come with them. That was more in regards to, you know, the rules that they had over there when it came to like interacting with the women over there. So there had to be a female present. So I got picked up for doing some of those duties as well, which I, personally I enjoyed that. Just, you know, having the interaction and getting to know people over there. Eventually, they noticed that women are an asset. Eventually. I think they knew for a long time, but they didn't want to admit it. And now they're kind of acting like, wow, women can do all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, because we have been doing it for so long. Exactly. You said that you went outside the wire in Iraq and sometimes it was dangerous. Do you want to talk about any of those experiences? Oh, I've got plenty of those. (laughs) Well, I mean, of course, we had to work a lot with in Iraq with the Iraqi army and a lot of with the Iraqi police, which I would say the Iraqi police was not so trustworthy because every time we had to work with them, something that happened, if it was an IED, if it was an ambush, something always happened. And a lot of the times we did just basic supply runs with a lot of contractors and it seemed they were like the main focus of the attacks for some reason. So that, that was frustrating I would say, because we could have done those supply runs without contractors. Maybe it wouldn't have been as as difficult. Those things happened. And during my first deployment, usually as a service and recovery team, you're a two-man team because you drive the wrecker and you only fit two people in it. So you have two mechanics in there that know how to operate it and work on the vehicles. And I remember we were at like a 43-vehicle convoy, like a really long convoy. And... um, we were vehicle number 25 at the time, and everyone was going, nothing nothing happened, nothing going on. It was the middle of the night, and we ended up striking an IED at, uh, with our vehicle. To me personally, I was knocked out a little bit, but nothing like severe or major. But my teammate or best friend at the time was really badly injured, and um, basically... It's, it's still, I'm still working with um, a therapist trying to recover a lot of the memories because there's really still bits and pieces missing. But um, all I know is eventually he passed away in the field. He bled out and I was clinging on to him and not wanting to let go. And coming to the realization, like when the medics came and like, just grabbed him. And for me, it was just like so emotional because for me, it was like, oh my God, they're just grabbing him and throwing him around like a piece of meat. Not noticing that, you know, they have to deal with that all the time. So they have their own way of dealing with things. But um, that was rough. And then after all that happened, they basically just told me, okay, now get in the other truck. We still have six hours to go and just move on. And it was just for me, it was like, are you serious right now? This is this is not happening. And and then of course no one in the truck with me wanted to like even mention anything. They're all just staring at me. But every time I looked at them, they're just like looking away, like, no, let's just not look at her. <laughs> let's pretend nothing happened. So that was 
probably the worst experience overall, even though, you know, later on I got injured myself, but not, it wasn't as bad as that experience. Yeah, that's one of the problems with the army is they're like, mission first. And they're like, all right, you're okay. Get in the truck. We're going. We still have to get our mission done. And you're like, this traumatic event just happened to me. And like, I'm still trying to process what's happening. And they're like, no, you're fine. Yeah, they don't, they really didn't care much. I understand that they, I don't know, they have their things that they need to focus on. And I'm, I'm sure that it, they are affected by the things that happened. They just can't or won't show it to us in a certain way. We just, it would have been nicer if they have given us more assistance in dealing with certain things, which they didn't at the time. Yeah, for sure. Definitely in 2008. I've talked to people on the podcast and women were told, well, you can't have PTSD because you can't be in combat. Well, I was outside the wire and I was in combat. I don't know what to tell you. And so I've heard stories like that. And so I can imagine how hard it is and to come home and still having that trauma because you have to like push yourself through it. But then you come home and then you can't even get the help when you get home because people are like, but you're a woman. I went into a uh, combat PTSD program specifically for combat veterans that experienced combat. So first, it was even hard to get in because they didn't know how to house me as a female because I needed my own room with my own bathroom. So fi- finally, they got took care of that. So I, w- I lived there with 25 men. And I was there right as Veterans Day came along. And there were people coming in, sometimes bringing food and, and gifts and stuff. And this lady came in and she was handing out cards. And it was a closed unit, so we couldn't leave. So I was obviously a patient. I had like my right white wristband on and everything. And she passed out the cards to the guys, skips me and pass. And the guys just sat there and looked at her and like, ma'am, you know, uh, she's a veteran too. And she's like, oh, I I thought she's just a wife. And I was like, I didn't even say anything at that point anymore because I was like, kind of used to this. I'm not even going to argue anymore because this is ridiculous. But yeah, it's more common than, than not, which is sad. Yeah, that's why the podcast is here to help people hear our stories and to know what we've experienced and to know that stuff like that happens. Women often are ignored as veterans, even in a situation where it's obviously everyone in there is a veteran. It's like, oh, no, you're a woman. You can't be a veteran. So you said your first deployment was to Iraq. Was that the deployment you got injured? I was injured on my second deployment to Iraq, which... We were closer to around Kirkuk area. We did a lot of missions through Mosul and we were on a supply run again. Somehow got stuck a little bit in Mosul, which wasn't the greatest situation, but that wasn't our fault. So one of the vehicles ended up breaking down. So over the radio, they called us up, you know, wreck her up. So we come, we drive up front, trying to hook the vehicle up. I'm out in the back trying to hook it up. And suddenly we started getting ambushed. So, you know, you just hear the incoming fire. You hear the bullets like zigging by and you're just like, oh, crap. And then, of course, they're just like, you know, back in the vehicle, get out of there. And I was really unlucky for some reason. So I was was running back to the truck. The wrecker is a little bit higher. So I had to climb up that that slight little step ladder. And I was holding on with my arms up. And because I had my front side plates, everything in. But... Somehow I managed to get shot right underneath my arm because I had my arm up. So luckily it was considered a graze because it just, it didn't go in completely. So it 
kind of went in on the side and shattered three ribs. It punctured my lung and then it cracked my right shoulder blade. Honestly, I don't remember too much afterward because it was that heat and pain and just out of breath moment. And I fell. And then I remember that there were local nationals there and they, they started grabbing my feet and dragging me to the side. And of course, in my head, I was like, oh my God. I don't know what's going to happen now. I was in so much pain. I wasn't able to move. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to defend myself. So I was looking around for my buddies and they were, I mean, they were busy themselves trying to, you know, lay down fire, doing uh, fives and 25s. So I was like, okay, I'm kind of screwed. So, and then I already started kind of blacking out. Next thing I remember as I woke up in some kind of, it was like a blown out shop or something. And those guys, I was lucky, were good guys. They really just wanted to help get me out of there and they put like towels on this, on my side and I remember Sergeant Donald came in and then I blacked out again and then the next thing I remember I was on the medevac and I had this PJ sort of hovering over me and I remember I just looked down and I saw the needle in my chest and of course from training you're just like oh oh no that's not good that's a bad thing and he like just looked in my eyes and he saw me looking down and so like looking back at him. He's like, it's all right. I got you. <laughs> and he gave me, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah. He gave me ketamine because they couldn't give me morphine for the bleeding. So he gave me ketamine and <laughs> I, was, I was out for, I don't know how long, a long time. And um, he even actually came to visit me in the hospital in Landstuhl to see how I was doing because he told me that. It was just really uncommon for them having to deal with a female being shot. I was like, okay, I mean, cool, I guess. So he, that was nice. That was a good experience within the bad experience. So, And, you know, all the guys just being so worried and everyone was so upset. Be like, we, we have this one girl. Really, guys, this one girl and you can't manage. It, it, I still kind of try to see it as a funny situation rather than a bad one. They did give me the option... If I want to, you know, leave the army due to my injuries or if I am able to recover and do what I need to do, I can stay. And I wanted to stay in the army. So I did everything I could to recover. And honestly, it didn't even take that long. And I was doing well. I was doing Spartan races to just you know, build up my abilities again. I guess that was the not so bad injuries of my injuries. So you were able to stay in the army and recover from that injury? Yes. You, you got injured again in Afghanistan? Yes, I have a lot of bad luck. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything between Iraq the second time and then the Afghanistan that you want to talk about? During that time, I had more, I was more focused on like progressing in rank and just, you know, getting better at my job, which came with its own struggles because guys didn't like to take orders from a woman. I guess the field of mechanics, they, they wanted to claim as a male field. So on top of that, having a female uh, supervisor and then a female like in the field of mechanics was just a no-no. So I know I had a lot of guys giving me a rough time or trying to give me a rough time. I know there were sit, like small situations during deployments or field exercises where my sergeant major would come into the motor pool while I was working on a truck. And then he would say like, well, Sergeant Brown, I would rather have you work in a talk because you are a distraction in a motor pool. 
And I'm just, I'm just, I was flabbergasted because I was just like, really? I'm, I mean, you see me, I'm doing my job. I'm working on a truck. What else do you want me to do? The fact that I'm a distraction is not my fault. Blame that on the people that are being distracted. But of course they don't see it that way. So it sounds like you faced a lot of challenges just being a woman in the army and trying to do your job. It sounds like you deployed a number of times in your career. And so you didn't go back to Iraq this time. This time you went to Afghanistan. And that was in 2016? 2016, yes. Back then, it was called Freedom Sentinel back then now. And I was in the Kunar province, which was actually considered quite dangerous area. It's the area of Asadabad. And so doing the same thing, being a mechanic, doing runs, doing missions. And so we were driving from Asadabad to Jalalabad. And we were about maybe 10 minutes out, out from our fob. And once again, managed to hit an IED. It blew up a little bit in front of our vehicle, which was good. So we didn't get like injured from like metal shrapnel kind of thing. However, it still managed that our vehicle flipped and flipped to the side. And I had a driver. He was a young private. He was like 6'4", like a really big dude, just in general. And we flipped and no rollover training really prepares you for that. It was so fast. And he ended up on top of me. And of course, the, the cabin was kind of crushed. So he was just stuck and he couldn't move. And every time he was moving, I could feel my back cracking. And I told him, I was like, just stop moving. But he was just freaking out. So this is where I eventually just, as I mentioned, I like, I like to bring humor into things. I was trying to crack a joke. And I just looked at him. I was like, look, this one time, you know, you can lay on top of me and I will not complain. And I could instantly feel him. Like he looked at me for a second and then I could feel his body relax. Which, I mean, made it even harder to breathe. But at least he stopped moving within, I, didn't, I don't even know. It didn't even take very long until they pulled us out of there. I just remember my back was killing me and they just wanted to focus on my neck, my neck. And I was like, my neck is fine. It's like my back is hurting. So they flew me out, ended up somewhere in Kabul, ready did scans. And they told me I had nine broken vertebrae. And I, was just, I just looked at them. I was like, you got to be kidding me, right? Be kidding. There, they said, there's not much they can do really there. They have to fly me back to Germany. I'm like, yay, going back home again. And while there, they did the first surgery. They literally cut my whole thoracic spine open, put in a bunch of screws and rods just to stabilize everything. And I woke up and I had a son and I woke up and I was like, this is the worst pain I've ever had in my life. And they came into the room and looked at me like, yeah, well, after we opened it up, we saw two of your vertebrae are so shattered. We have to replace them. So they have to put like plates and spacers in. So they were like, we give you one day to recover and we go back in. And I was like, no, no, you're not going to cut me open again. And they're like, yeah, if you don't do that, there's a high risk. You can be paralyzed. And I was, I was just at that moment, I was so angry and so much pain. I was just like, I don't care. And I was just probably the worst patient ever. Uh, eventually a colonel came into the room and he was like, Sergeant Brown, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but. At this point, you're still property of the U.S. government, and you're going to have to do what we tell you to do. Yeah, my mom actually came to the hospital at the time, and she told me I was screaming no all the way to the OR for the surgery. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty traumatizing in itself. 
Yeah, and you mentioned rollover training, and I had to do rollover training in Indiana before I left for Afghanistan, and then I had to do it at Bagram again. And every time that I did it, I was like, this feels so like a roller coaster and not like a car crash because it was like very gradual and there's nothing in there. So there's nothing that's going to fly around and hit you in the face. And I mean, I understand why they do it to like help prepare you, but I also... I like how you were like, it doesn't matter how much rollover training you get. You can't prepare for it because it's not like the real world. No, because they will tell you during the rollover trainings, like, A, they tell you when it starts. And then, you know, you sit there and you're rollover, rollover. And I couldn't even get like a word out before we flipped. And it's just like, I mean, the words that do come out are definitely not rollover. <laughs> so it's loud on top of everything. You have the explosion. So you have that. You don't hear anything. You don't see anything. You can't, you completely use, like lose your orientation. What's up? What's down? Then you have a dude on top of you that won't stop moving. So there's just so many things that could go on that they just can't prepare you for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, I was going to ask because you deployed in 2008 and then the second time you deployed 2010 and then 2016. Were you working on Humvees in 2008? Yes. So it was mainly Humvees, five tons and Hemets that we worked on in 2008. We had a couple of heads, which are like the 18 wheelers. They were hauling tanks at the time. Because back then they were still hauling the tanks around. In 2010, tanks weren't used that much anymore. So the heads kind of got lost in the sauce too. And they started like pro- progressing into MRAPs. So we worked on a lot of MRAPs. Still had a couple five tons. They, they just stuck around. And then, of course, since I was working with combat engineers and stuff, I had the buffaloes, a couple more of the like minesweeper vehicles. So um, I was focusing a little bit on that because I was good with hydraulics. And then in Afghanistan was still still MRAPs and, and buffaloes mainly. Yeah, it's just interesting to like hear about the progressions of vehicles because I deployed in 2010 and we were in MRAPs and MATVs and we did training in Humvees. And then like when I started this podcast, I realized that like people deployed in Humvees and I was like, what? Because like the MRAP is like this giant zone of protection, you know, it's... And then, like, a Humvee is pretty much a car. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's just so crazy to me to, like, see the progression of the vehicles throughout the war. And just also, like, at least for some of the MRAPs we had, you can say that every now and then the air condition would work. However, in a Humvee, you had a switch that was cold and hot. If you hit cold, it would still blow hot air. And we did have up-armored Humvees, so... They were somewhat safer, but you're sitting in the super hot tin can with all your gear on. It's blowing hot air and you can't even roll the window down <laughs> because that's deep dangerous. So you're just like baking in there for hours at a time. So it got musky and kind of nasty in there, to be honest. Yeah, that's just, it's just so crazy how different everything was and like when I went and I went in and we had MRAPs it just that kind of was in my mind that that's what everyone had and then when I started doing these interviews I was like wait they weren't around from the beginning but obviously that makes sense but yeah it's just kind of crazy how much the war changed like with IEDs and the roadside bombs 
And even like the progression we had when it just came to the IEDs themselves, and we had we progressed our vehicles. So so at first you had IEDs that were triggered by phones. Okay, so we put on like those signal blockers on the vehicles to block the signals. Then they had IEDs that were triggered by the heat of the engine. So we put on those rhino mounts with a glow plug in the front. So at least if it triggers, it triggers in front of the vehicle. Then you had the pressure plates. So I know that a lot of the buffaloes or the mine-sweeping vehicles that were used by uh, the combat engineers, they had those rollers in the front with a lot of weight, doing basically the same purpose, at least having it blow up in front of the vehicle. So they progressed and we progressed, but just it's like constant like learning from each other. And I know even though we had the MRAPs at a certain point, they eventually came out with their EFPs, which, you know, when they put in those copper pieces into the IED. So when the IED blew up, those copper pieces got so hot, they went through the armor of the MRAP like butter. So it's just, you know, you, you, you think and like, oh, we're good. Everything's safe. And, and then they just pop up and have something new. And you're just like, wow, really? <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. And that also reminds me, like, the MRAPs were pretty new when I was deployed. And so the next evolution of IDs wasn't quite there yet because they were still in that transition phase of like, oh, there's this new technology. How are we going to overcome it? So it's really interesting to hear that perspective, being that you were a mechanic and that you deployed multiple times over multiple years. And then, you know, you also learn about the people and that live there because A was working with the Iraqi army guys. I know I, I tried to talk to them a lot and they were telling me, because I asked them, I was like, so why do you work for the Iraqi army? And they just looked at me and they're like, well, either you guys kill me or my guys kill me. You guys pay me more. So I'm looking out for my family. So, and then you're like, wow, that's, you know, that's rough. And then when it came to like Afghanistan, for example, the IED that we had, it was underneath the asphalt. So there was like no way for us to see anything. But the way that happens is, you know, we have government contractors and funding that helps them build roads, yet they have other influencers that pay them even more money so that they will put those IEDs under the road while they're constructing it. I mean, they really did just live to support themselves and their families in the best way possible. Of course, we have a hate for the fact that they do that. But being over there also taught me a lot about, you know, the different kind of circumstances and living qualities that they have. So it's rough sometimes. Yeah, that's really hard. I was on a PRT and we were the ones building the roads in Afghanistan and I was in Kapisa. But yeah, that just shows the complexity of something that I think a lot of Americans don't understand because they haven't been over there. And like with the pullout of Afghanistan, it was so hard to watch everything going on because like you said, you understand the people, you understand they're just trying to live their lives and survive. And right now, people in Afghanistan are suffering they're suffering in different ways than they did when we were over there with starvation and not having money. And so it's really hard to watch and to hear about all the things that are happening. I know. For me, I was heartbroken for the little girls there because we had a certain task in our AO because we had a little uh, a school for girls. And part of our task was to kind of guard the perimeter of the school because they did get attacked a lot. So 
The job itself, it was rewarding because I personally enjoyed seeing the kids and the girls being able to go to school. But then I was also extremely frustrating because, you know, as you know, we have our rules of engagement and our task and sole purpose was to guard the perimeter of the school. Nothing outside of that was anything we could do. So the, the girls would leave school and go back into their town and get attacked there. And there was nothing we could do about it. So there were girls that had acid thrown at them. One of the female teachers got stoned to death in the middle of the road. And we had to stand there and just watch almost. And it's just like, and I know, I remember I was just like, I had my weapon and I was just like, I want to flip the switch. I want to flip the switch. And they're like, you can't, you can't, you're not allowed to. You know, and they're just like in your ear constantly, you know, think about your own family. Because, you know, if you do something wrong, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to go to jail, so on and so forth. But it's just really hard to witness. And then when they started pulling out of Afghanistan, I remember specifically there was this one video of the girl at the airport just like leaning into the fence and screaming and crying, you know, that the Taliban are coming for her. And I was, I mean, I was in tears. I could not, that was something I could not deal with. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And I mean, I can see the emotion on your face and I can feel the emotion inside of myself just thinking about it and pull out happened last summer and it's still affecting so many veterans. And I think it's important that we talk about it and how it makes us feel and and just so that people are aware of it. And I mean, after that happened, I lost two friends to suicide because of it. And sadly, I mean, yeah, we do have suicide awareness and people talking about the 22 a day, but it's still not very much talked about, let's say, even in the media that, you know, after the pullout, that's what happened to those veterans. The veterans took their lives because they couldn't deal with the fact that they saw, you know, they put their blood, sweat, and tears over there. They saw their friends die. They saw their friends get hurt. Just for us to sit there and then everything being taken away within a couple of months. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It is. It's really hard. Yeah, I had friends reach out to me while it was happening, and that meant so much to me because you like it was great to see that other veterans and people who knew how I had deployed thought it was important to reach out to me and see how I was doing and to check in on me even though it's not in the media it's still important to check in on people you deployed with or people you know who have deployed because it is hard and it's not something we follow a guy on YouTube who he does financial stuff but he's very involved with stuff going on in Afghanistan he actually raised I think he raised over $200,000 for food for Afghans. And I really like watching his uh, investing videos. And then sometimes I'm like, okay, I'll watch his Afghanistan update. So I'm informed, but I have to be in the right mindset. But it's really cool to see a civilian who's out there trying to make a difference and raising money. And we were able to donate to help the people. And it's just cool how this YouTube guy could raise like that much money to help people overseas. Yeah, I try to. I'm honestly still in contact with most of the guys that I work with and deployed with. If it's Facebook or Instagram, we somehow still connected. And even the guys that I met in the PTSD unit, because we all live close together. So we built something we call it a fire team. 
So we meet once a month to go out to dinner or lunch and talk. We know of each other's problems because we had trauma groups together. So we know what we struggle with. And, you know, you have certain cues that come from them. So you already know like, oh, you know, let me, you know, drive over, see how he's doing or, you know, things like that. So I, I think that that was a really good thing that came out of it, especially since after my second injury, I spent a lot of time in Walter Reed for recovery. And during that time, my ex-husband decided to leave. He took my son and just took off and was like, all right, I'm done. Bye. After 16 years. So it's just like, okay, I appreciate that. And then he claimed that I'm not able to take care of my son because of my physical condition, because of PTSD, which he has too. He's just not admitting to it. So that was a struggle because you're in the hospital, you're trying to get yourself better. And yet, you know, you have really limited access to like lawyers or getting things done. So he took real advantage of that, which broke me even more at that point. So that was rough. Then he himself was a rough person. That is actually something I've mentioned to someone else. I actually feel the military failed me extremely when it came to my relationship with my ex-husband because he was very abusive. He was arrested for dislocating my shoulder while we were stationed in Texas. I would show up to formations with bruises and they knew and never ever was anything done to him. I mean, I have like all the MPs uh, reports that I got from Quantico for the court proceedings and you have like the reports and then in the back of it is usually like the commander's recommendations for what kind of punishment Nothing. No extra duty. Nothing. And I'm just like, really? Aren't they always preaching? You know, do not beat your spouse. Do not beat your children. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then you have like this prime example. Someone that gets arrested. Someone like, I mean, they have x-rays on my shoulders, things like that. And no one did anything because A, we were either too close to a deployment or they just didn't want to deal with it. And it's just, I feel failed because maybe... If they would have done something, I would have been able to leave him earlier, something like that. And the 2021 NDA had a lot of changes for military sexual trauma and taking that out of the chain of command. Do you know if that had any impact on marital assault or anything like that? Or is that something that still needs to be worked on? I think that is something that still needs a lot of work. And that is, but that is something that is up to the leaders too. Because you have to pay attention to your soldiers. And like I said, I was a prime example that would show up with visual bruises, not like some that are hidden underneath somewhere. Like I had a black eye. I had like bruises in places that were able to, they could see. And they could, at least they could have done is ask, you know, what's going on. If I didn't want to respond to anything, then that's like a different situation. But then they can still escalate something. And then, of course, the leadership, when they get a report of spousal abuse, they need to take steps for it. And not just brush it on a rug and be like, yeah, yeah, we don't want th- those things on our reports. Because honestly, that's what I sometimes felt the issue was that higher ups were like, oh, well, these are all things that will pop up on the on our reports and our, uh, you know, things that other people can see. And we don't want that because we want to look good. And it's just something like that should not be important. And it's important. The welfare of your soldiers is important because if you want them to function correctly and, you know, accomplished a mission that you set out to do, you need to take care of them. And I think that's where they failed a lot. I cannot speak 
from anything now from 2018 to now. If that has improved any, I doubt it, but it's definitely something I need to work on. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the military sexual trauma stuff came from Vanessa Guillen's death. And I know they've been advocating and working behind the scenes for years. And it wasn't until her death triggered people to take action. So I hope that the military is able to take action and make changes without having to have someone die like Vanessa. And the sad thing is, though, I know that SHARP is actually a really good program that they put into place. However, they're taking it to like a certain extreme now that it's almost not good anymore because now it's disrupting the work between males and females because males, I have a lot of friends that are infantry guys and now the guards are joining infantry units and they're scared. It's like, I don't even want to talk to her because I don't want a sharp complaint. And the problem is that I had a female soldier that took advantage of sharp and reported someone for something that he didn't do. And those things happen, which also makes it harder for the females that actually have something happening to them because then people don't believe them. So I, I know I had issues myself. Like I was in 2008. Sharp wasn't nearly as big. I tried to report it. I ended up at my battalion sergeant major's desk and he just looked at me and was like, you know, you better not talk about this. Otherwise you're going to be the one in trouble. And I was a private. So I was like, okay, shut down, go away. And now I'm more upset about the fact that I didn't report more because that guy is now a really high ranking officer in the military. And I'm sure he's continuing to do what he did. So that's more upsetting. But I think it's, it's a really fine line for that to get that right. Because you, don't, you do not want to scare the guys to interact with the females because that disrupts just the work environment in general. But then also you don't want to brush everything under the rug because stuff like with Vanessa Guillen happens. Just, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's a hard line. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Someone was asking me like, well, how, how, what was it like to be a woman in the military? And I was like, well, I mean, people didn't talk about sexual harassment, so I just ignored it and I didn't have to worry about it. Like people said stuff and I just ignored it. I didn't have to think about like, does this bother me? Should I report it? And I know that's bad, but also like, it's really like you just explained all the complexities of guys not wanting to talk to women because they're worried that they're going to be upset about what this guy say the dumbest stuff. I say that right now, they say the dumbest stuff. And so I feel like it's so hard to be a woman in the military now because there's also this like extra weight and responsibility of how to do it right. And you said, like you said, it's such a fine line. And especially when you think about like females getting into combat jobs now, when I think about those first two lieutenants that went through ranger school, I mean, they went all the way with, you know, shaving their their heads and, and, you know, trying to fit in. There's like, I cannot imagine if they would have shown up the way that some of the female soldiers look today um, with tons of makeup and hair done and this done. So I think that if you want to fit into a certain job, you need to adjust. You need to... The same when the guys say, like, all girls can do that job. I always said, like, you know what? If the female is physically capable of doing that job the same way you are, then yes, she should be able to. I mean, some of the excuses they were throwing at me, I was just like, I always disagreed with. The only one that... Where I was just like a little, I was like, okay, maybe possibly was an infantry guy that told me, he's like, well, it's a male instinct to protect a woman over a man. So if there's a firefight or something going on, 
they have a tendency to cover the woman before they've covered the guy, even though the guy might be in more danger. So that was the only one where I said, like, you know what, that I can't really disagree with that. I don't know, male instinct. So there is a high chance that I might be right. But everything else is like, if the woman is capable and they, you know, they can do the job, they should be able to. Yeah, and we're about to run out of time, but I know that you're working with Veterans Laughing Together through Vet TV. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you ended up doing that? It was actually on my Facebook page of my old unit from 101st. They just had like this almost like a casting call about uh, people that got injured in combat and if they're able to talk about it and laugh about it. So I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I might just try. So I just wrote down basically what happened and like my funny lines in there. And I guess they loved that. And within a week, they called me and they said like, okay, we're going to get eight Purple Heart veterans together. And we want to have you. At first, it was supposed to be more of a comedy situation. And then while we got together, it turned more into like a documentary style. And it was interesting because we had a, guy, a Vietnam veteran, a special forces veteran. We had Marines, Army, Navy, like everything. And I remember being, I was the only female there. And I know I felt so humbled because, I mean, you had one guy was a double amputee. Of course, Vietnam veteran for me is, is just a whole different league in general. Um, then one guy was burned so bad, he lost his fingers. It's just like some really bad injuries. And I sat there and I was like, man, I don't even know if I'm, you know, if I belong here. But then we were going through our stories and the most humbling thing was the special forces veteran came up to me and he was like, he like patted me on the shoulder and he was like, man, you went through that twice. And, uh, you know, and I talked to him also about like, the bad experiences with my ex-husband and so on. And he even said, he's like, he knows guys that would have blown their head off by now because of situations like that. And they also told me for them, it was eye-opening to talk to a female that's been through stuff like that because they had always the impression that females don't do anything. They just sit on the fob and so on. And then hearing that, oh no, there's one. They, they do do combat and they do get injured. Oh my God. So... I'm really good friends with all the guys I met there too, especially one of the Marines. And he always tells me, he's like, I'm still in awe. Like, and I was like, honestly, like I'm only one that like spoke up about it, but there are so many of us. We just, we kind of, you know, fall into the background because we're not being like talked about. We're not the combat guys, even though we sometimes end up doing those, those jobs. So I know that there are plenty of women out there that have, bad injuries, have bad experiences and, you know, been through hell and back. So, yeah, it's so great that they had you on and you were able to share your experience and enlighten not only the people who watch, but the people who are on the show with you and how they their perspective shifted by hearing stories, which is why I say stories are so important. And I think it's just extremely important that we share the female perspective. Like a friend of mine, she wants to start her own nonprofit that focuses mainly on female veterans and, you know, have them talk a bit more. And especially with the experiences of being overlooked, even though you're in a combat, like PTSD center, it's just like, it's eye-opening because you're like, yeah, people really do not pay attention that, you know, our women are over there fighting too. They're doing those jobs too. They're being shot at, they're being blown up, you know, things like that. And people don't pay attention to that. It's so true. So my last question is, what advice would you give to a young woman who is considering joining the military? 
So for me, I would always tell them like, if you enjoy a challenge, if you want to do something to make a change, follow your dreams, follow your goals. And especially when it comes to the military, do not let anyone talk you out of the job that you want to do or how you want to progress. If you're capable, you know you're capable of doing it, then follow it and kick ass. I love that advice. Thank you so much for your time and for your being so open and sharing your story. I think that we covered so many important aspects of serving in the military and just thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military and if you enjoyed women of the military podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service